0: Friends and countrymen, it's Masculine Underground Live. Uh, today we're going to be doing part two of the matriarchal sex cult stuff. If you happen to be listening or watching the recording, you might want to listen or watch uh, part one first. Um, but if you're watching live, please stay on live because I will be answering all your questions in real time and clarifying what needs to be clarified. So I uh, got a lot of great questions uh, from people in the Masculine Underground group Um I have about 10 that I'm going to try to answer as I go along through telling the story. And if you're watching, um, feel free to pop them in. <clears throat> I think there's always a delay with uh, the questions, so I might not see it immediately, but I'll try to answer them all as I go through the story. Um, I think I don't think I have any announcements. I'm in Thailand right now. I just moved to a new house. It's a five-bedroom. It's awesome. Huge piece of land. Um, the one thing is that... Uh, I'm, like, right under a flight path, so we might hear airplanes throughout this recording. Can't do anything about that. Um, that's it. I mean, open an invitation to people who want to hang out with me in Thailand this winter. I think that's it. I don't have any other announcements. I'll just jump right in. So, <clears throat> where our heroes left off, I was one year into the sex cult. I had just left employment of the business. So, if you remember, uh, One Taste didn't have official uh, titles, or organizations, because I in my theory is because it was a matriarchy. It wasn't like Scientology, which was a patriarchy built on male-oriented testosterone-driven uh, paradigms where there's clear rankings and structures and the chain of command. One taste was purely matriarchal. Um, power, was con- power and control was um, determined by approval. Actually, sorry, someone just started gardening. I'm going to close the window. One second. All right, I'm back. Sorry about that. Uh, new noises, new home. Um, so, yeah, so power was determined by approval in the way that I understand or observe that power and pecking order is um, is asserted in, like, a group of middle school girls. Like, unlike a group of boys, like, the pecking order isn't necessarily determined by who's the loudest or most dominant in outward fashion, but who can control approval? And I'll, I'll dig into that and parse that out more throughout this, but... Um, So there's like one taste, there was the OM community, which was like people who just took classes. There was uh, people who were deeper in, who had some responsibilities with actually throwing the parties. Um, And this is actually one of the terminologies that they used. Um, There were party goers and party throwers. A party goer was someone who showed up to events and showed up to the community and enjoyed all the benefits, which was largely what my first year in, in the cult environment was, in the cult reality. I was just like absorbing, taking um, growing, healing, all of that was great. But at a certain point, they kind of, in a way, they kind of guilted you of like, if you've, you've gained all this stuff, at some point you need to give back, you need to be a party thrower. And this in itself is a very true principle, right? Like if you're constantly consuming, you see this in the self-help industry, in, in my in the personal development world a lot, like people who are self-help junkies, they take every workshop, they go to every single thing, they've been healing themselves for 10 years, but they haven't actually they never reach the point of completion where they like, oh, I actually don't have – I'm not bogged down by my traumas. I'm not bogged down by in, my inadequacies. Um, and I actually see – this is one of the tru- truths that they shared. It's like if you're constantly consuming and taking and taking and trying to heal and grow and, and consume all the time, uh, at some point you reach diminishing returns and it becomes gluttonous. It's like one of the seven deadly sins of Christianity. Um, at some point you do need to start giving back if you want to continue to grow which is something I tell my clients all the time. Like, Once you've solved your selfish problems, the only way you're going to evolve to the next level is to find some way to give back to other people. I think this is true with money. It's true with growth. It's true with everything. So anyway, um, there are different layers of one taste. I mean, once you're deep in the community at a certain point and you've healed enough, you move to the next level. And I was working for the company. I told the company I didn't want to work for them because I basically uh, didn't like the way they handled money. So I we had a... An annual break, and I thought one year had completed. So I went in thinking I would take this one-year experiment of living by desire, living irrationally, living in this feminine oxytocin-driven world as opposed to rational thinking, which I was used to. Um, <clears throat> here comes an airplane. I don't know how bad it's going to be. I'll turn the game down. And uh, <clears throat> and then I thought I was complete for a year. I was like, okay, this uh, experiment is done. I've gained what I've needed to gain. I don't want to work for the company of One Taste, but I want to keep living this orgasmic life. So, it was around New Year's of 2013 into 2014 <clears> that I was like, okay, I have grown. I'm a coach. I've been running my own men's group. I'm a leader in this community. I'm gonna build my own community house. I'm gonna create it. I'm gonna create my own thing. So I was like, there's a bunch of other people in the home community who had either worked for One Taste or had been deep at, deep like in that power structure of approval where you get deeper access this is one thing that's important the more access you got and the more power you had and influence in the community the more committed you had to be in their in their social hierarchy that's kind of how it went like there's like again there's no clear rankings or there's no clear in and out but it was kind of you could feel who was in and who was out based on approval so i was pretty influential in the community because i had the approval of the higher ups but I, and that and they, they went both ways. So this is going to be important later for why I left the cult ultimately. So um, I decided around New Year's that I was going to create my own place. And this actually ties into one of the questions I got um, on, on manifestation and law of attraction. So with everything, with magical thinking, I was always back and forth, like in and out. Like I liked the idea of it, but I couldn't commit until this one taste reality where I was like, fuck it. If I'm actually going to get the benefits of this mystical world, I better buy into the reality of it. So I did. And at this point in like the end of 2013, beginning of 2014, I was probably at my peak of believing in everything because I had pretty much experimented with like different belief systems that I never had entertained before. And I had gotten benefits, you know, like my love life and my sex life was amazing. I had more confidence and more influence in the world. And it seemed that, you know, Especially living with a bunch of people who all thought the same way, like we all thought, like okay, if we raise our physical arousal levels, we'll be able to attract more things. And there's probably truth to that, right? Like if you're feeling better in your body, people are nicer to you. They want to give you more things. Like you can navigate the world better if you're feeling shitty and closed off. Obviously, that comes out in how people treat you. It, it reflects whether that causes money and opportunities to be attracted to you. It's, there's no way to prove that, but I was entertaining that idea. And this is all to say that around January, I just decided, you know what? I'm going to create my own house. I, I mean, at this point, I was like 20 grand in credit card debt. I, I had basically had no income for six months. But I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I'm going to create my own house that has all the principles of orgasmic living without any of the negatives, without uh, without the, the, the dirty business practices, without the manipulation, et cetera. So I texted a couple people, and within eight days, I we had this house. We had this five bedroom house, a duplex in Brooklyn. It was affordable. I mean, affordable split 10 ways because we were going to do the same thing where everyone shared a bed with someone. Um, And so this was another thing of like, oh, I, I, this materialization, this uh, manifestation stuff, law of attraction stuff does work. I was turned on. I believed in a hundred percent and this happened because it was totally irrational how this happened. I just happened to connect with the right people. Some people who I'd like Big income on the books. One of my buddies—I won't say his name, obviously—but he's kind of a key figure in the story. I don't know how much I'll tell his story, Uh, but he had a lot. He turned out to have a lot of money, um, and I got like I just attracted ten people like right away. It was like flawless. And this is something I've thought about a lot since because in my years after the cult, there's been on and on on times and off times where I want something and just happens, or there's I want something and for some reason it just won't happen. Like we've all experienced this. Like sometimes it flows, sometimes life is stuck. And I think back to this time a lot because this was a time where I was so sure of myself and everything happened so quickly. I've actually been thinking about this a lot recently because um, uh, my girlfriend and I, we decided we wanted a certain type of house. This is like last week. Last week, we decided we wanted a certain type of house. We wanted a big house with extra rooms, to have an office, a library, guest rooms, whatever. We wanted a lot of land. We also didn't want to be too far from the city. So like. Uh, I'll skip the details, but it was very—it's very unusual in in Thailand or in most cities to have like all those things in one. We decided we wanted it. We we did some you know feel good rituals, which were maybe kind of cult like, um, and then like within eight days again, we moved into this amazing place. It's like a it's like a crazy find, and it's like super affordable. So again, I was thinking like, oh, there are some principles of materialization and law of attraction, and again, I'm not going to say I I I think that everyone should do magical rituals to create things like hard work is important, but there's something there. Anyway, I'm going to get, I'm going to go back into the story. So we ended up manifesting this house really quickly and right away because I was an influential person in the community. And this is why, what I think is I was influential, a person in the own community, immediately our house became a kind of a big deal in the worldwide community. So real quick, I'll explain like, so one taste had a pretty large business. They were an Inc 500 company for, and they really blew up in these years that I was in it, like 2012, 13, and 14. Um, specifically 13 and 14. I, like In 2014, they were in, the top te- they were in a bunch of top 10 lists for Inc. Magazine. So they're making a lot of money. They've grown worldwide. They're based in San Francisco, but they had huge hubs in L.A., in New York, in London. They were expanding to Paris. They had smaller communities in Austin and Boulder and Portland and stuff like that. Um, so there's this worldwide network of OMERS, which was people who did orgasm meditation, who kind of all knew each other through Facebook and social media. And, and one day's actually built their own social media platform called the OM Hub. I forget why. I think it was for privacy reasons or so that they can own the content. I don't remember. But they built their own social network. So the, the cult had the worldwide, you know, uh, they were, the, we were all connected through social media essentially. So we all knew each other. So even though I hadn't met most of the maybe a few thousand OMers throughout the world, because I had been in YouTube videos and things, and like I was well known in the New York community, and people traveled around and talked about each other, and and the other and it's not just me, like the other people in my house uh, were also some of them were influential in the home community. We immediately were a star on the map. So like when people would come to New York to do the coaching program, which is what I did, I did coaching program six a year later. They had coaching program eight in New York again because the odd numbers were in San Francisco, the even numbers were in in New York. Um, a lot of people would stay in our house, and our house became like a well-known thing within the ohm community it was known as the brooklyn ohm house and um, but for the most part one taste let us alone like that was the, that was the whole point of us creating a house like we wanted to create our own like community run center that was not attached to the greater organization which had positives but also negatives um, the thing though is that myself my buddy i don't know what to call him i'll try not to tell his story too much i don't want to air someone else's laundry but my, my, I'll just keep calling him my buddy. Um, my buddy who helped start the house um, and his girlfriend. Like we were kind of running the house. We were just the ones who were the driving for us. Like I was the one excited about creating it. Um, he, uh, he, he had he had the finances to actually get a house for ten of us. At least on you know, on paper as far as you know credit went because all of us, most of us didn't work, including him. But um, he he had money. Um, and then uh, his girlfriend was kind of like the house mom who organized like. The, the flow, the three of us were kind of the ones running it. And a lot of times we would have our, even though we we, we meant to create this home, here's one of the dark sides of like group thinking and human, one of the realizations I should say. Um, we wanted to create this community, which was egalitarian and every like everyone was uh, supported. It was like a true democracy. But the truth is we found out within the first month, like it's really hard to run a true democracy, even with 10 people, which is not a, you know, on a grand scale, it's not a. It's not very grand. Ten people. There, there, there's just like, not everyone was going to take full responsibility. Not everyone was um, going to chip in evenly. And without power structures, we were not going to efficiently run as this community home. Like there had to be some level of power. And this was like one of the realizations of like me. I mean, people disagree with me on this, but part of the reason why. I mean, Jordan Peterson talks about this a lot. Not that. Not that I'm for or against him. Like it's just like. Power structures are necessary for groups to function. Like you can't have a ten-headed animal. Like when people coalesce, and this is why cults work and and what families should be and why we're attracted to tribes, like humans are social animals. We're meant to come together as a super organism. And a superorganism or any organism can't have many heads. Like it's just not going to function right if every person is like trying to make decisions for the whole group. It's not going to work. We 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 all inherently want to defer to someone who could be our head, or be the head and have responsibility over people. Obviously, power has, is abused, and we're going to talk about power abuse in my cult story. It's it happens. Maybe it's maybe it's like an inevitable piece of like having power, which is why checks and balances are important. But Power, power structures are important. So anyway, I really realized with uh, with my two uh, community home organizers, the only way for us to function well as a community was that we kind of had to introduce certain power structures uh, without being obvious. So uh, so my buddy, he he actually, I had just left the company of One Taste, but he actually entered. Sorry, there's another airplane. I don't know how visible it is. Um, he actually had entered a business deal with One Taste. And he was getting like he, he was kind of working with them, and he was getting direct access to um, uh, to some of the higher ups who were very wise in social communication. So he would get uh, kind of tips from the one taste higher ups on how to run communities, and he would share them with me, and we would talk about them, and we have a lot of great discussions on how to run a community. And one of the things, one of the dark lines, and it's like a highlight of my book, was that. For a community to work, you make it seem like a democracy, but you run it like a dictatorship. And, um, and anyway, this is this is the type of stuff we talk about. I know, like, I know some people I'm living I used to live with are probably gonna listen, or if, if they're not listening right now to this. So and I'm just gonna air everything because I mean, whatever, this is all true. And it was all done benevolently. It wasn't like I initially none of us were going into it trying to be power hungry, but we realized if we're gonna run this community, we kind of have to call someone has to be the decision maker, and someone has to call the shots. And the truth is, nobody want. very few people want the responsibility of being in the care of, of uh, having 10 people's well being based on them. Like, it does feel good to have power, but it, you know, as, as the cliche goes, it comes with responsibility. So, over these first couple months in the cult house, um, I was learning a lot about how to get people to do things, not for my own ego's sake, although I certainly had an ego. I'm, I'm not saying I was free of that, but how to get people to do things. Um, and listen to my authority and coalesce into the group reality because that's what's important about all this. It's kind of like I learned this from a dog trainer. Like, after I left the cults, I did a lot of odd jobs to get by, and I was a dog walker for a minute. And um, I worked for my friend who was a dog trainer and really wise. And he was like, The point of getting obedience from your dog or why all these dominance, like Cesar Milan stuff, is important is not because you want to dominate or like. Be cruel to your dog. It's like, as the owner of a dog, especially in somewhere like in New York, your dog needs to trust you and see you as the alpha. Otherwise, you won't be able to keep them safe. Like that's the that's the idea behind it. And that's like, you know, if you if you've taken my archetype class, for instance, the masculine archetype class, I talk about dominance psychology. That is what benevolent dominance is. You're taking wholly responsibility for the well-being of another person. So anyway, these first couple of months were about me learning little things of like, oh, I mean, and this is the dark part of my second year was that. A lot of the things that were done to me by One Taste in my first year, I realized that I wanted to run this home the way I wanted to in a in a healthy, happy way, where everyone is like this super organism. I kind of had to employ certain tactics back. So some things were like um, uh, the big thing that Nicole, who was the cult leader of One Taste, did really well was control language because I think I forget who said it. It was either Buck, Mister Fuller, or somebody. Or might have been Noam Chomsky. I don't remember. I'm just throwing out names right now. But uh, someone said um, language creates reality. Actually, i should going to look that up because I don't want to misquote uh, creates reality. Who said that? Um... Alright, some some long ass blog where they didn't didn't say it anyway. I'm not gonna go into that. But language creates reality, and a lot of the way we speak, and like one of the ways that people's brains were washed in one taste was that uh, definitions of words would change a lot. And I think in part one I, I shared about how the word orgasm was manipulated. Like it went from a climactic event in sex, which is what our normal thought of orgasm is, to an orgasmic state. To any feeling in your body or energy, like qi, to meaning the Tao, like like Taoist, like the Way of the Universe, to to God, and that became mixed in with One Taste. So like people would, would synonymize God and One Taste, and like it would be very confusing. And this is one way that people would. This is one way that One Taste would manipulate people's reality. Like pe- once you start changing the language you use, your perceptions change. Um, I could probably go deep onto that, but that, that's basically it. Like the, the memes we use, the inside, the jokes we use, the expressions we use shape how we view the world because to go trippy just for a second, like there's so much sensory data from being a person in the material world that we can't possibly process it all. So we filter out things based on our worldviews. Like if you think, I mean, like the selection bias, if you think red car, you certainly start noticing more red cars, things like that. but. In like, if you think if you're thinking identity politics, you start noticing identity politics. If you're thinking uh, power dynamics, you start seeing power dynamics and everything. If this is this is just how we are. So if you start thinking orgasm is guiding you, you start seeing that in all different ways. So uh, some ways that I would manipulate reality. Oh, this is the other thing. Was like just like I I don't think anyone other than maybe the founder was a true villain in the cult story. Even people who did terrible things. I would, I mean, I see, I mean, I might be saying that to absolve myself of whatever. Like I really had benevolent um, intentions and I didn't, um, I didn't manipulate, I didn't Oh, I didn't do, do a lot of this consciously. So this is, I, I know I'm going off on tangents, but I think it's important. Um, Nicole was the founder. Uh, she, you may have heard of neuro-linguistic programming, NLP. Uh, it's. It was popularized by the game and the pickup community as ways of controlling people and, you know, Darren Brown speaks about this in his TV shows. Um, NLP was created by uh, John Grinder and Richard Bandler uh, back in the day. Uh, Allegedly, Nicole and Richard Bandler lived in an LSD house together a long time ago. So while he was forming um, NLP, she was there. So she was an NLP master, and she would do these different NLP techniques. One obvious one was open looping, which is – where you start to enter a, start to say a sentence, and then you you change you redirect it before ending the thought. So like a loop is like uh, you open an idea and you close the idea. Um, but an open loop is like you open the idea and you change the subject. So when someone's listening to you, they're kind of caught on the first idea, especially if you're speaking quickly or you're on a stage where like people are just, so just one-way communication. And if you open enough loops, it starts to overwhelm the person's mind so they can't like they're not thinking of it consciously, but they can't really keep track of everything and then you can throw in an embedded command like you need to give us money or you need to move across the country or something like that and then you finish it or the way I, the way i have noticed she would finish it sometimes when i did notice which wasn't all the time she'd finish it with like a quote by some famous poet that you can't like deny so she'd open loop 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 throw in an embedded command end with something because people only remember the last statement so they would be like oh yeah that's a great quote like she would like quote Oscar Wilde, like, oh, that's a great quote. And they would forget all the open loops and the embedded command, but they'd feel the embedded command and be like, I don't know why, but I think I got to spend some money with one taste uh, So this was like a, this is a very sophisticated technique. What was interesting is once I started noticing it, I realized that every person who taught for one taste including myself, would speak in open loops unconsciously like most no one knew what open loops were very few people knew what what they were but um, we all started speaking this way just because we absorbed it it's just like how we learn our mother our native tongue like we don't learn about grammar or think about it we just hear our parents talking it and then we we can speak it ourselves same thing with techniques same thing with our perception of reality which is why I went on this tangent about language and reality so um, small things I would do is like I would add phrases to our big chalkboard um, like one, it's not some of these are good. I can't go I explain them too deeply because otherwise, this video would be too long. But like, bottom to God was something um, uh, I would give nicknames to everyone in the house. It was totally unintentional, but it's something. This is another uh, mini tangent again on language. Um, there was some book, I forget what book, it's like kind of a famous book where they were like, it was about schoolboys, I think, in like a, an all boys school. And they're talking about the power dynamics in in boys schools and like the first tier of people everyone calls them by the first name. So like the super cool kid, they talk, call him by his name, Mike. Um, the second tier of people, like the people who are just under, the boys who are just under the first tier, they get a benevolent nickname from the first tier people. So like Mike will name another kid uh, Speedy because he's fast. Like, And for Speedy to accept the nickname from Mike, he needs to kind of, in, in a sense, he needs to uh, submit to Mike because he's accepting the nickname he got. And it's a benevolent nickname and like, okay, this guy is not the guy, he's not the shot caller who's naming people, but he gets a benevolent, he's like under good graces of Mike, who's the top guy. And then the third tier of people are guys who get negative nicknames like uh, like Fatso, right? So Fatso, he's, he's, the, he's called Fatso by Mike because he's um, he's not as cool as Speedy. He's certainly not as cool as Mike, but Fatso will accept the nickname because it's better to be A third tier person in this social hierarchy than it is to be the fourth tier because the fourth tier gets no name like they're pretty much ostracized no one talks to them and socially that's the worst it's it's the worst and this is actually we're going to come back to this when we talk about the the, my my exit and like how they would excommunicate people it's like it's better to be it's better to be part of the organization than to be a nobody which is you know, you might be listening to this and thinking, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't accept a nickname like Fatso, or like, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't let someone give me a nickname, I wouldn't be a second tier person. But most people don't think this way. Like, if you have a nickname with your friends, I mean, I'm not going to go, I mean, if we go into normal cultures, like people give each other nicknames, it's not always like a a clear one, two, three, four hierarchy like this. But this is a way of like, to accept someone else's language for you, or to use someone else's phrases, um, is to in a way, submit to their reality. And this is something that uh, most people don't aren't aware of. So something I notice a lot because I was in this situation, I would write down a lot of things that would happen. I would notice that if I started using a phrase that came from someone else or an expression that came from someone else, in some way I was submitting to them and taking on their beliefs. And I notice this now a lot when, you know, I, I mean, I obviously teach a lot of things and I use terminology and sometimes I invent terms just for ease sake. When I notice someone using my terms, it's not a bad thing. It doesn't mean that they're weaker or anything, but it's it's like – oh, they're actually bought into my reality, so I need to be responsible with what I say to them. It's not a bad thing, and, like, I use other people's language. It's not like you should go through the world trying to not use anyone else's language. It's just to be aware of it. Like, if you're using someone else's inside joke or someone else's expression or a meme that comes from someone else, you are, in a way, buying into the reality, and it's just it's important to be aware of it. Anyway, a lot of language stuff. I'm going to move on because I don't, you know, I want to make this... I'm going to keep this video to an hour. Um... Yeah, so I th- oh, another thing that was important, and this is what I learned actually in the Marines, but it was reasserted in one taste, was that whoever is being seen as the reality creator, the shot caller, has to be seen as as, as competent or more competent than everyone else. Um, so the things that were that matter in this community were OMing and were insight. So this is another important uh, thing that I didn't get into in, in part one. Obviously, everyone in the ohm community OMs. But everyone in the O.M. community also was really good at verbal penetration, meaning like they could give a read to you and tell you like the the truth. And like it's a very important skill. It's something I use in coaching a lot. It's something I use in teaching. It's just good in, in relational communication. Um, but everyone was kind of expected to have this skill because and this is a part that I think is true, but is also manipulated by one taste, which was um, when you can feel another person, whether it's sensationally on uh, you know touching their genitals or like feel someone empathetically. Um, you can kind of tell how they want to be interacted with or what would be the most resonant way to interact with them. So if you're stroking a clitoris, you can feel a sensation that will produce the most sensation. If you're speaking to someone, you can kind of get a sense, like an intuitive sense of what is true for them, what you can say to them to get an emotional response, um, what, what questions to ask them. And these were skills we trained, like, in the intro events. Um, we would – basically all the games were, were built on people – Vulnerably communicating, but also reading each other in a way that was very effective. So anyway, this is all to say that I knew I had to be the most competent, and it came down to like, this is just a silly thing, like we would take turns making dinner in the house. I would try to be the best dinner maker. I would spend all of Tuesday making sushi from scratch or something just to, uh, just to top the house. So, power- so this is also when I met my buddy Rapani, who is a dom, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm gonna skip that because uh, it's t- too many tangents now, but I-, I learned a lot about power dynamics in these first few months. As my house, as the house that I created with my friends, the, the Brooklyn Ohm House gained notoriety in the worldwide Ohm community, One Taste started to take notice um, because I didn't realize it at the time. I thought it was just nice. Like, oh, the One Taste people, like our, our quote-unquote parents, um, were just thinking this is a cool thing. They want to visit us and stay in the community. But like looking back, I realized they realized that we had influence. We had our own co-created reality within the one-taste reality. And if that if our reality became too big on its own, it would be like a cancer that would pull people away, or like that would destroy their whole system. Or I mean, I'm mixing metaphors, but um, yeah, it would, we would just pull people away from this reality. So they needed to make sure they absorbed us. So, and this, this I believe is a Buckminster Fuller thing. You can't destroy, and this is actually something Nicole would say all the time, you can't destroy a system but you can create a bigger system that makes the old system obsolete. So like what they would do a lot would be absorb uh, ideology. I mean, the Roman empire did this with um, their syncretization of, of deities. It would be like, Oh, your guys are not different. They just go by different names. So they absorb it so that the Egyptians, the Greeks, the the Britons, they wouldn't rebel against their religion. They'd be like, Oh yeah, the Roman guys, they're, they're actually the same thing. Anyway, um. So, one taste started spend the one taste staff. The higher ups started spend more time with us. They start visiting the house. They'd be very friendly with us because they wanted to make sure that we were um, an obedient vassal state, as opposed to this rogue, uh, this rogue village within their empire. I'm talking about the reality. It's All metaphoric, obviously. Um. So I uh, just want to make sure I didn't miss anything. I want to get into um, magical thinking, dominant psychology. Okay. Oh, so so. They started giving us good tips on how to, you know, I was getting direct um, instructions or suggestions from my cult mom on how to, you know, benefit the house. But there are also power dynamics. And someone, I just want to throw this in there. Someone asked about speedy transformation by residents. Um, there's one of the positives. We did start tra- attracting a lot of people, and around the first couple months, I started to feel like true authority. Like, oh, I, I'm actually, I'm actually the parent figure here. I was the, one of the youngest guys in the house. I was 24, 25. And there are people as old as in their sixties in the house. But I did myself and my and my buddy and his girlfriend. We we were kind of the parents of the house. Like people would come to us for advice. They come to us for help with their lives. And um, I did feel really good about it. And I felt like it was important. I think I did help people. Um, some of the speedy transformations happened with. Um, there were so many. I'm just going to share some. Like uh, there were people. Basically, people learned empathy on a real level. Like. All the things that you see in workshops or things that people try to get to in personal development, like opening their heart and being able to... uh, The big thing overall that everyone experienced in the house on a positive level was their walls came down. People who, guys who would come from the pickup community and they're used to manipulating and, and using these, like putting up this facade would learn like, oh, hey, in this house, people can read me so my facade doesn't work, but also it's safe to just be myself and I can express myself and express my desire Uh, On the other end, people who are super timid would finally be like, oh, I can actually just speak my mind and everyone's going to love me and I don't have to be afraid of the world or people who were or people who are timid about doing what they want, like quitting their job and living in this house. Like I did convince some people to quit their job and move across the country and live in our house, which I do think was, you know, it was an employee of certain power dynamics, but I do think it was beneficial and I, I hope it was beneficial to such people. A lot of women would learn to be feel safe in their sexuality and be expressive and be a powerful person. Like there were a lot of beneficial transformations, which further reinforced that me employing these power dynamics were beneficial. And I think for the most part there were, but there were some dark stuff. Um, just want to make sure. What else? Uh, I'll leave that for the end. Magical thinking I talked about. Oh, one thing. So. As, I, as my balls got bigger with controlling the reality, I would go deeper and deeper into things. I would add memes into our house of things we did. Like, th- this might seem super silly to those who listened who actually lived with me back then, but like, there was a, a one-taste um, uh, common, common thing where we'd all do check-ins, where we'd emotionally share, so everyone would take two minutes. Every meeting started with people taking a minute to share their feelings. I felt this always took too much time. So we did this thing where we would all put our hands in the middle and just like imagine shooting energy into each other and then just feel each other. And with everything that we did, it always started as kind of a joke. Like we'd be giggling like, yeah, whatever, we're shooting energy into each other. But a funny thing did happen where we started to actually like kind of sync up emotionally and like that was how we would do check-ins and it was kind of like a cool thing. Um, And this is to say, uh, magical thinking. So we all believed in this thing because we believed in it, it kind of worked and it did have an effect and something I noticed as we went deeper and deeper into stuff I made up or stuff that my buddy made up to add into the house was that um, magical occurrences happen more. I mean, I, I even share about this in the archetype class. Like if you look for synchronicities, you'll find them. If you're living with a bunch of people looking for synchronicities, the synchronicities become a lot more obvious. They become a lot more clear. They become a lot more meaningful. And this, Yes, this is selection bias and confirmation bias. But also something I realized during this time in my life, like, reality is subjective. So if if you and everyone you meet believes that a chair is blue as opposed to red, who's to say it's not blue? Like, if you actually believe it. I mean, this is like the gray area where things become funky. So anyway, um, I'm going to move on. Someone asked about male-female dynamics. we will talk about that. Getting high, dominant psychology we talked about. Um, So uh, this is a few months in. Oh, so as I became more influential in the cults, the one Taste staff would keep asking me if I would rejoin the staff, and I kept saying no because um, I just didn't like the way they did money. I, there's a lot of things I didn't like. I kind of liked just being who I was, which was I viewed it as being a vassal state within this kingdom, and it was nice. I was like, you know, uh, I had autonomy, and I would do copywriting projects for them, and I would still do YouTube projects for them. So I was still, uh, at one point, this is silly looking back, but the CEO of One Taste named me the the male voice of female orgasm, which she was trying to turn me into like a PR figure. Um, because I, I became very good at translating their verbiage into ways that were marketable to people, which is, I don't know, yeah, it's just how my brain works. I like to take weird concepts and make them practical and use, that's kind of what I do for a living. Um, I kept saying no, but they kept pressing me on... Uh, going deeper and deeper. And at and one point I realized I wanted to write a book. Like the, My true desire was to have direct access to the cult leader, Nicole, because she very truly had this ability to help people and see people and read people and control people, but also like she had the ability to really help people. And, and she did help me evolve as a person quite a bit. Um, so I had reached out to her directly about writing a book with her, and she said yes, which, which spiraled this whole Thing um, uh, the way that the social hierarchy worked, as I mentioned before, was that uh, to get deeper access, you had to be more committed. So people would commit with money; they would commit, or they would commit with their life. So basically, in the home community, there's two kinds of people: people with with money who would put in money, and that's how they would get approval and access and move deeper into the community. Or younger people, typically, who didn't have money, but they would commit their lives and like work around the clock and volunteer and stuff. And um, uh, so for me to get direct access to Nicole, I was kind of skipping a step. I was trying to kind of hack the, hack the the power game here. And that was seen as that was like not allowed. So I started getting, I'm skipping ahead, but I started getting this pressure and I actually met with Nicole directly. Um, and she said straight up said to me, you're asking me to give you power. But the problem with power is that when you give someone power, they can use it against you, which became kind of an ominous line many years later. Um, but she also said, like, I don't know if you're fully on my team. She was basically challenging me to say that I don't know if I should give you this access because I don't know if you're with me here. I don't know if you're going to turn against me, which was not my intention at the time, but maybe that's kind of what happened. Um, let's give me a couple things. There's some important things happening in the community. They started The business started to really balloon and became very big, like I said, they were in the top 10 lists of Ink Magazine for different categories, and um, they started to move into this, oh, this is actually an important aside, so I'm not gonna go into the, much of the One Taste history before me, other than there was a lot of darker esoteric stuff that happened, actually, I don't even wanna go into it, but there's there's stuff that was closer to sex work and prostitution that occurred, allegedly, um, this is what I've heard from people who were around before me, but there was something that they taught, which is kind of like a witchy skill. Uh, they didn't teach it directly, but they spoke about it. And just like everything else that was learned, it was kind of learned by osmosis. So it was called hooking, which is not a term they invented. But um, hooking is basically like getting someone addicted to you so they'll kind of do what you want. It's, I mean, like a hooker seduces a man so he'll give her money, and this plays into this fantasy of, of that they're actually in love when he knows, I mean, well, while factually they're not. Um, Hooking was like this skill that they talked about, and somehow people learned this. So you'd see a lot of young girls, young women who would enter the OM community. They're beautiful. They would start OMing. Their sexuality become vibrant. They become super charismatic and charming and magnetic, and they'd want to take this expensive one-taste course, but they had no money. It would kind of be suggested that, oh, if you you can find – it would be implied that somehow they can get – a man to pay for him, and like I mentioned in the last in the, in part one, like you'd see this a lot, like a super hot girl with like a tech guy with money who probably wouldn't normally get a girl like that, or an older guy or something like that. So you see this a lot, and um, hooking became like kind of a popular topic in the own community uh, around this time, like in the middle of my second year. we we're like I had this one friend; she's still a good friend of mine today. i don't wanna, airplanes passing by. I hope it's not too loud. Um, where she got this guy to give her fifteen thousand dollars for the coaching program, and she didn't sleep with him. She didn't do anything. She didn't promise anything. But she—this is one of the wishy things, the magical seeming things. She got him to feel so good that he just was like, "You know what? I'm I'm going to give you this money." And this was like the way I, I look at it is like prostitution or sex work is an ex, it's a currency exchange, right? A woman has sex, a man has money. They exchange it, so now he gets the sex he didn't have, and she gets the money he didn't have. That's that's the oldest profession, right? One Taste found a way to, to, I don't know if empower is the best word, but empower women to get a better exchange rate where they can still get the money without even having sex. They could just flirt or they can uh, let him stroke her pussy or they could just, get, they, they, they taught this way of getting people to have such good vibes that they'd be willing to. And I, I spoke about this in the last video. Like I was kind of used in a way in the opposite where I would turn women on through this own practice and then they would get a sales call from my mentor and like end up parting with lots of money because they happened to be caught in this state of high arousal. Like it was kind of the same thing. Sex and money was mixed up a lot. Um, so women would start to kind of brag of like who they could hook. It was always done in a joking like in a kind of facetious way, but like, like real money was being exchanged. And one day started to do this on a, as an organization on a bigger level where they had this idea of selling, so they had built up all these different cities. Uh, I'm noticing I'm using open loops right now. I don't mean to, I'm going to close them all, but I'm jumping around because I don't know, this is my life and I'm excited to tell a story. Um, They had developed a bunch of these big cities, San Francisco, LA, New York, London were the big four. And, And I mean like the market there and the own community there, there's a lot of money going through taste had this idea to sell each city entity. It's its own, basically an affiliate entity or like selling a branch, right? So they would sell it because in every city, there are a handful of people who had a lot of money and who could actually buy it for seven-figure amounts. So they were going around selling. I think they sold London to some omers in the om community for like upwards of $3 million. New York, I think, was sold for 2.5 million or something. I mean, I don't, the numbers would go up and down. I was, was, this is important. Uh, I was talking to my buddy who lived in the house, who was one of these guys who had money, and he was like showing me their proposals to him. Like, I think at one point, they wanted him to pay like $8 million for this business entity that was turning a profit of like 10 grand a year. Like, it was ridiculous. Like, it was a ridiculous, I don't remember those were the numbers, but ridiculous proposition. Um, And they're doing this in, in, in the major cities. This is important because they started to um, I don't know how much I want to tell his story actually. Let me think about this. It affects me, but basically they were selling these entities. Maybe I'll get back to this. Um, so that was like the next level move. So when I was doing one taste, their big jump was sign the coaching program for 15 grand. They had mastery programs for for six or seven grand. They started this uh, Nicole they don't intensive where you spent two weeks with Nicole for 40 grand. Um, and then now they were selling the um, The cities for seven-figure amounts. Um, So One Taste was ballooning in this new way, and um, this was, uh, Why did I bring this up? Um, This was just what was going on in the Elm community, and uh, I was viewing this and also entering it, oh, this is going back to, uh, I got this ultimatum from Nicole about, and not ultimatum, I got pressure from Nicole of whether I was in or without. She would never say, she would never do anything dirty. Actually, I, I do need to share this part. So there was, this, um, there was this person who didn't want, um, basically he didn't want to give this money because it was a ridiculous proposition. His girlfriend was younger, a little more naive, very attractive, but also impressionable. And I remember actually being in one-taste meetings where they would talk about her and other women of like, oh, these, they would actually use the word impressionable. These women are impressionable. And they didn't use it in a negative way, like, oh, we're going to manipulate them. It was never, it was ne- no one ever would think that way or speak that way, but they would be like, Um, oh, she would be good uh, to attract new people because she'll regurgitate the lines we give her and attract young women or tech people or this, like, different... They they were very precise with their their sales efforts mixed up with sexuality. So... um, These are two parallel stories that interweave. I was speaking with Nicole. I was getting ultimatums for not ultimatums, I was getting pressure from One Taste staff to commit my life to them if I wanted access to Nicole. They weren't directly related, but I knew like what I learned from being in One Taste was that everything they did socially was like a joint collaborative, uh, uh, what's it called coordinated effort. Their sales, there's like the way they manipulated sex, like uh, the way they shaped someone's reality where they would have multiple people talk to someone about different, uh, the same thing in different ways to kind of get into their head. This was all coordinated. Um, so I kind of saw, at this point, I was a year and a half in, or almost two years in, I kind of saw the, the game for what it was. I didn't mind. I was just like, this is what powered in This is what people are like when they organize. Um, so I was getting pressure from the staff to rejoin them while my buddy was getting pressure to buy the New York affiliate for millions of dollars. He, he basically said no. So what they did was, they manipulated his girlfriend. Oh, I, I don't. I don't know. Basically, they manipulated his girlfriend uh, to join them and commit to the the cults, um, and like pretty much cut him off. So this was again. I don't. Uh, well, someone he really loved was now pulled away. And while I was um, being seduced to join the rejoin the organization, uh, he had lost his girlfriend. Basically, like not. Officially, but like she wasn't really speaking to him Um, polyamory was uh, Kind of normal in this community. So now she was encouraged to sleep with other guys, which was heartbreaking to him all this stuff was, all this fucked up stuff was happening to him in in This way fucked up stuff went around, but um, so I went on this. So all right. I don't know if I need to get into this, but uh, when I left for Brooklyn and created my own house I was given control of the Brooklyn Affiliate, so they had the New York events and they had Brooklyn events, which were way smaller, and I was working full-time with my friend Summer, who's been on the podcast, who you may know. She and I were were like, um, we're business partners in this way, and basically, we were working almost a full-time job, making very little money. It made very little sense, but this this is why I was still in the cult, even though I wasn't in it, or like I still bought into the reality of like, if we do this thing with passion, it's going to make money no matter what. That was part of the magical thinking, which I think is negative because that's not true all the time. Um, so anyway, I, I had this epiphany one day uh, where I was like, oh, I can see the whole game. I'm going to get what I want out of this because they're doing some fucked up stuff. I can't be in here forever, but maybe I'll stay in for another couple of years. You know, that, that was my thought in the summer of 2014. Um, so I decided to close down the Brooklyn Affiliate. Like I realized like I'd been working a full-time job making maybe a couple hundred bucks split with Summer, like making very little money. I was like, this is ridiculous. I shut it down. I handed it off to someone else. Um, and, then I was, and then the, the way circ- my life circumstances was Summer actually wanted me to bring her car to her sister in California. And there was a course called Magic School, which was kind of one taste coming out of bring out the occult. So Nicole allegedly did all this occult magic, witchcraft behind the scenes, but she never... Presented it to the public because she wanted the company to be marketable. She actually told me this in our one on one meeting, um, where she told me like she didn't really trust me, but she was at the point where One Taste was grown big enough where she can be open with all the weird occult stuff that she was into. So, Magic School, the course was called Magic School, was a course where they were going to show all the magic crazy stuff that they had previously hidden under reps. Um, I decided that was going to be my last One Taste course. I actually negotiated, basically, I did. I'm kind of proud of this. I used some one-taste sales tactics of guilting and making people feel bad. I mean, I'm not I'm not proud of the making people feel bad, but basically I, I took the dark arts that they had taught me and used them back on their sales team. I forget the details, but I got them to give me that course for free. And I, I remember um, one of the guys on the sales team who was kind of a dick to me, so fuck him, um, I'll to take that back. I don't want to. I don't want to harbor anger in my heart. But anyway, he was kind of a dick to me throughout my time in One Taste. He was very manipulative to me. He, um, but I had kind of checkmated him in a way. I forget the details, but verbally I checkmated him in a way where I had to get this course for free. And I'm like, great. I'm going to get this course for free. It's going to be my last One Taste course. I'm going to extract as much good or benefit as I can get from Nicole by writing his book from her. Write writing this book with her, and that's it. And I'm in this time. I had quit. I had shut down the turn on Brooklyn affiliate and I was taking summer's car to drive across the country, go to magic school and then come back to New York and like, and then write this book. That was my, that was my life plan at the time. And it was like, I'd always wanted to write a book my whole life. I wanted to be an author. So like, this was like my dreams. Like, Oh, I'd actually figured out this game. I'm going to, I'm going to get the most out of this this is a false victory in my life, but we'll see and I'll show you in a second. But I had driven across the country. I had basically, the first time in two years, I had disconnected socially from the group. So it's important. As I mentioned, we were all connected through social media, but one thing that was huge in one taste was text message threads. So there was a thread for the own staff. There was a thread for every city. There was a thread for the sales team. There was a, sale, a thread for the affiliates. So Everyone in one taste it's kind of a running joke. It Was kind of all it was true and sad. Like we were all on our phones all the time because everyone was checking in all. The, like you just imagine. We know this more now in 2019, many years later. How bad it is to have so many notifications. Like I was always so stressful. I was always so plugged in. This one time, I when I was working for them, this was the previous year. I went on a family vacation for a couple of days. It was the first time I spent time apart. When I turned back on my phone, my phone kept crashing because I had like. Ten, I, I'm not exaggerating, I had maybe 10,000 text messages from not having my phone on for, I think, six days. It was crazy. So anyway, I, just, I, I realized at this time that this was crazy. I didn't want to disconnect from this, so I didn't respond. I removed myself from every thread, which is kind of seen as like an act of aggression because, as I mentioned, they want everyone to be within the reality. If you are within their realm but disconnected from their reality, which was asserted by social media, communication, but also our text threads, kind of seen as a threat. I didn't really think this through, but that was kind of an act of war and they started moving pieces around to to checkmate me, which we'll see in a second. But um, one thing, I I went on this trip, I'm not going to say his name, but he's actually a really well-known guy who speaks about, um, he's done a bunch of research and TED Talks about how the big companies like Facebook and Google manipulate our attention. It was really interesting um, he was in the, I mean, he was in this community a little bit. I don't want to air his, his private life, but he ended up taking this trip with me and he was in the community. He was there for his own benefit, but he also noticed the cult stuff because he literally was a researcher for manipulation. So he'd share all this stuff with me. We'd have these discussions while driving across the country together. Um, cause I was dropping him off at Burning Man. It's around the times like August, 2014. And he was sharing with me about how, um, basically i realized our sense of reality is so easily manipulated and i looked i showed him my social media feed my facebook feed and almost every single thing on facebook was one taste related which of course gave me the perception that one taste and ohm was a way bigger thing than it was because if you're constantly seeing Advertisers know this. If you're constantly seeing Coca Cola, Coca Cola, Coca Cola everywhere, you're just like, oh yeah, everybody knows about Coca Cola because I'm seeing it. We forget, though, that our social media feed is personalized and the algorithm is built of like, if you like something, it gives you more of that thing. So, because I had interacted with own people, all I was getting on my social media feed was One Taste, One Taste, One Taste, One Taste. Literally everything on my feed was One Taste related, which gave me the perception, the wrong perception, that One Taste was this worldwide phenomenon when really it was just a couple thousand people around the world doing this weird sexual practice. Um, this was an important realization, because I, uh, yeah, basically, I, subjective reality, all that stuff. So, um, so I had these realizations over time. During this, this is maybe a personal aside, I was really trying to play into the idea of my own spirituality. So it's like, what if, oh, I don't know if I, basically, my intuition grew a lot. My legitimate intuition grew a lot during these two years but I was really trying to push it, like how far can I go? Because I did start to have auditory hallucinations in the sense in the sense that like words would pop into my head like while I was coaching someone or while I was speaking on stage. And this is basically your subconscious giving you information, but for whatever reason, I perceive it as like actual words in my head. I'll hear words in my head, which I don't think is anything trippy, it's just like how my subconscious processes ideas. I, I hear it as words, I'm a writer, that's probably why. Um, But I was hearing, I was like really trying to take seriously all the voices during this road trip. So I call it my magic flight road trip. If you know the hero's journey or the monomyth, the magic flight is one of the stages in the hero's journey where the hero uh, goes across this journey, this final journey to attack the final villain. Oddly, synchronistically, this was where it fit into my hero's journey in life. I was going across the country literally to something called magic school. Just funny things if you're into Joseph Campbell random coincidence or not maybe it was not coincidence maybe this is life um so i was really pushing my belief systems like every time i had a voice in my head i would do the thing even if it was irrational like i gave someone this leather bag randomly in new orleans because i heard a voice in my head that said give it to him i went to sedona And I I had this random voice of like, leave your notebook up here, which was one of my prized possessions. If you know me, I always have a notebook with me. And I just left my notebook on top of this mountain just because like I heard this voice in my head. So it's kind of going. This is just where my headspace was at. I show up to magic school. It took me like, I think maybe two weeks to drive across the country. I show up to magic school and everyone from the greater ohm community, like people who knew me from online, were really nice to me because I was an influential member in this community. I had written a lot of things. People knew me. But everyone from New York was ignoring. Me. We we're giving the cold shoulder, and I had no idea. And I, like, I didn't realize it because, like, I'm not the most social person historically, or even now, or ever. Like, but, and I never would have thought that social ostracization would, would hurt me so bad. But man, when your best friends suddenly just don't talk to you, like, I know I sound like a middle school girl speaking, but it 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 fucking hurts. Like these people who knew all your secrets and you've been like who you treated as family, all of a sudden I didn't understand why. I was like, why are people? pulling away. And I finally confronted one guy who lived in my house. He was also on the staff for one taste. He was also my my very first coach when I entered the own community. So he really like, he's the only man I've ever been able to cry around. Great guy. Shout out to you. You know who you are. I won't say your name, but uh, I was like, dude, why is no one talking to me? And he he was like, he was like angry. He was like, you abandoned the orgasm, which I know this is a funny phrase, but like to them if you replace the orgasm with God or the Tao, like it was like you abandoned us like in his perception I mean the the group reality was that one taste and the orgasm which were synonymous and you know the, the way of the universe was growing in a certain way and I had turned my back on them by shutting down the affiliate and leaving the text message threads and left like I know this probably seems like why is that such a big deal but in this co-created reality it was the biggest fucking deal like if you were not part of it you had to be pushed out and I, actually I'm gonna say this real quick I saw this many times in one case where someone, for whatever reason, would fall out of favor. Either they would challenge the authority or they would do something that was um, bad PR. This would happen. Sometimes someone would like – a guy would – this was before me too. I mean I'm not even going to get into that. But basically if someone was not fully in or they had a reason why they were not in, they were questioning the authority – we would get the directive or it would be basically framed like, oh, this person has a virus. That's the language they would use. This person has like a mental uh, – they're in the wrong reality. They don't use that language. But they would say this person is sick in the head. You don't want to get infected by them, so we can't talk to them. And I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that I did this to people who were re- my, my close friends. I was like, oh, yeah, I mean uh, so-and-so is all fucked up in the head. Like I don't want to spend time with her because she's going to like mess up my head which basically was like she was in a different reality. If I spent time with her, I would start thinking differently than one taste. So what one OneTapes always do is they would push them out. And I remember hearing this from my cult mom all the time. If someone wants to come in, you pull them all the way in. If someone is not in, you push them all the way out. This was something she would say all the time. And there were reasons I understood later for this about the group reality. Like you didn't want, if someone was like coming in, you wanted them to be 100% in. And if not, they were a liability, so you had to push them out. Um, anyway, I had started. I was becoming a liability now because I had basically said no to the group reality in the form of the stuff that I just mentioned. So I was like confused. I was like, "Wait, what the fuck? Like, how could my best friends uh, cut me off? Why was everyone being so mean and cold to me and acting like I wasn't there?" So I um, I, I confronted my buddy who was in this group of people, and he was he was like. A shell of a human like he was looked like he'd been crying for days um, he was normally like he was like my best friend at the time like we would laugh together we you know we'd share a lot of things and like he was just dead as a person and after, he was like a zombie it was like uh yeah, it was just like a zombie movie like he seemed like a zombie and I kept pressing him like what the deal was and like in a weird voice in a way that he never spoken before he was like he basically told me that even though it was a dumb decision he gave one taste the money they wanted because they had his girlfriend and he wanted her back, which is, you know, I'll, yeah, that's basically what happened. So even though he knew it was irrational, he was like, they took the thing that he cared about the most at the time. And he was willing to do this irrational thing, give this money. And for, and because he was also, outside, so this is another thing. that's important. This is video is going to go out over an hour. I hope you don't mind. Um, uh, if you're watching, you're watching, you're a free person. Um, they, they, uh, if someone was on the edge and, and they had been out and they were trying to come back in, what one taste would always do because of the group reality stuff was they would have to go through some sort of trials and tribulations where they were were somehow in a sense humiliated. And so it was very clear that they were coming back in, uh, pledging fealty to the, to the group reality. So if you see this like in, in medieval things like game of Thrones, like, if someone is going to be brought back in, like Jorah Mormont is being going to be taken back in by Daenerys, he has to show his loyalty by doing something risky or humiliating or sacrificing something. This is every kingdom inherently knew this principle. Like if you want someone to come back in, they kind of have to bend the knee, if you will, to prove their their authority. So, like I don't know exactly what he went through, but he went through some process of humiliation or something that beat him down so that. His ego was like they would call this. Uh, they would call this uh, this this practice called killing, or this technique called killing, where you would use vulnerable communication to pretty much shatter someone's ego. So this was some. Anytime someone would challenge authority in a classroom, um, my cult mom was really good at this. She would say the exact thing that was just like like a knife in the heart. She like read you and pick on the thing. So anyway, I didn't have to know. I could see on his face that he had been killed. He had been his ego had been murdered. Um, he was like a dead person, and the reason why they did this was, one, to swat down anyone who would resist the group authority, but also uh, when someone was killed, uh, they, they became very impressionable. Like when you shatter someone's ego, when you fuck someone up in the head, they're like in a stunned altered state of consciousness, well, they will now listen to what you say. Um, I knew he was killed. I realized what had happened. Um, they had pretty much used his girlfriend as a pawn to get him and his money, and I had now become persona non grata because pretty much everyone in the One Taste staff and my, my friends in New York had gotten the directive to not talk to me. So I was now feeling fucked up too. Um, I don't know if I want to tell this side story. It's kind of humorous. But anyway, I, I, might, I might say this. Like, So I ended up like hooking up with this um, awesome woman uh, in uh, – do I want to say this? This is really personal. I'll, I don't know. I'll get to this. But anyway, I, started, I spent started playing time with this woman I just met in the um community, and she, and I started like pretty much hiding with her. Magic school itself was full of these kind of. It was supposed to be. I was really interested. I'm still interested in occult stuff and anything magical that is actually real or can have a real effect. Like even if it's just in altering your consciousness, I think that shit is cool. I still do rituals on full moons and stuff to alter my consciousness and prime my my subconscious. I think this is all legit. Magic school itself was so ridiculous. It was like such a farce. I mean, not everything. On the podcast, I just had Leslie Celine, who's one of the teachers there, who I think is super legit on the on the mystical stuff, which is why I had her on the podcast. But it, basically, it was just like an obvious thing to me of like, okay, this stuff is nonsense. On the very last day of Magic School, um, Nicole directly said something to me. So this is a room full of two hundred people on the beach in Monterey, California, and she basically said to me that I, I forget. Oh, she said I was an orgasm pimp. She was saying that I was, she was basically accusing me of what was kind of true, which was i trying to take all the benefits of the one taste world without giving giving back. But she framed it in a way that made me look like an asshole. And she, she, in a way, gave me an ultimatum, either you commit your life to us or you're out. That was a big shocker, especially having two, few hundred pairs of eyes on me while I got this. This was kind of a final straw. I sat down and this was like this was like now I was in the phase where if I I was now pushed out I was on the edge of the of the community if I wanted to still be part of it I needed to humiliate myself back in. Um so I called mom who for the last 2 years was so supportive of me and like always talking me up and you know giving me uh very useful instruction and tutelage and mentorship and also like just talking me up in the community. She gave me a lot of power in a in a real way. She was now uh she was now giving like in the pickup community we call it negging, where like you say kind of mean things to bring someone down and like get uh, get them to seek your approval. She would do this a lot. So like I was going through this new period where I was now I had gone from this very influential figure to now being like this sub thing. And it was very interesting because immediately as the switch happened, um, even like the lower level, like if you if you think of one taste as a court system where there's like. The queen, and then the lords, and the whatever. Even the low-level workers started being a mean to me all of a sudden. And pre- for the previous one and a half, two years, anyone in one taste who knew me was super nice to me because I was like seen as a higher-level thing, like a an earl or a duke. I don't know, or whatever. Um, so now I had I had now was dropped to peon in the way people were talking to me. It was very clear, and I think it was all subconscious. It was just like it was a group reality. The duchess had now. Now, or the queen and and my cult mom, who was like a Dutch, had now dropped me down, so now I I was being treated like crap by everybody. And I'd seen this happen to other people who had been pushed out, for them to come back in and they had to humiliate themselves. So I was going through this kind of back and forth of like, do I go in and humiliate myself, which means committing maybe my whole life to this thing, or go back where I'm now by myself and alone and like fucked up in the world? Because there's another thing, like with the group realities, and I shared this when I, in part one, like, the way it was was that obviously I still had my friends and family outside of the cult, but my life and my situation was so unrelatable that I couldn't go back to them and get empathy. The only people who understood me were the cults, And, like, that was one of the things was, like, fuck, I have nowhere else to go because if I'm not with them, I'm by myself in my own reality. Like, for my, my friends and family outside of the cult to understand my situation, they would have to have listened to these two hours of podcasts to understand. Maybe you understand. Uh, maybe you can go out and help Called people leaving now that you've listened to these um but so anyway i i and I, oh so weirdly i got sick i'm i am i do I'm want to tell the story i'm going to tell it because it, it's in my book this might be a weird thing um i hope well anyway um so i i was at the point where i was like all right god i was talking to god at this point i'd never done that in my life i was like all right what what do I do? And I wasn't like it's all of this bullshit. Like is because at magic school I saw like a lot of their rituals were done in like this haphazard bullshit way. Like they there's this one ritual where they had is jump over a fire, but it was an electronic fire, like it was like a bunch of candlelights. It was like ridiculous. I started to see all the nonsense they were doing. Um and I remember talking to God and I remember one of the last things we did was we put intentions into this wooden box with the understanding they would happen. And, and remember going back to the the law of attraction stuff. I had really started to buy into this stuff, and now I was questioning everything because like, everything bullshit is everything just a, a co-created agreement. It's this all emperor's new clothes. So I put in a bunch of things that I wanted in, in uh, the God box, like my intentions. Like I wanted to write a best-selling book, and I wanted to have money, and I wanted to have whatever. And I and I and uh, actually, I actually this is I just gonna say I learned this from my buddy um, about contracts because he was you know he was very successful. He knew about contracts, and he was he told me a story about the ramones the band and how the ramones is like you you may have heard this is like the green m&m clause like i believe it was the ramones I could be getting the band wrong um but they would put in a a thing in their contracts with venues like you must have a bowl of only green m&ms in our dressing room so when the ramones showed up to the venue if they didn't see that green those that bowl of green m&ms they knew that the other people didn't actually read the contract so i had this funny thing where i was like uh uh, silly, whatever silly thing where I was like alright I'm going to throw a green m M&M m to see if God is actually listening because all of my other intentions like I can't know if they are coming from him or you know the universe or whatever or it's so like I was like I want to I, I already said it, I'm just going to say it I want to fuck the girl next to me in the ass like that was like my random thing because it was a totally random occurrence like why would that happen so I just threw that into the box too and I was like alright if that happens then I know that God is actually listening funny thing like that night that's she actually asked me if I wanted to do that I'm only sharing this because it was just like this weird thing of like, I still don't know, like, I, yeah, I guess it was law of attraction or maybe God was listening in this weird uh, kind of perverse way. Um, anyway, uh, so now I was fucked up. Oh, I came back to New York and now, I was, and now I, even in New York, because P, that's where people knew me the most, I was really bottom of the barrel, persona non grata. Like even in the men's group that I started, I started the New York men's group. People in the men's group were all now being mean to me and assholes to me because they they kind of sensed from the higher ups that I was now this person to be shat on, um, and my my former coach and my buddy were were the like now the lead like they were they were they were risen, raised. They were raised to the position of power that I used to be in. So like they were creating the reality. They set the reality that Rwanda is an asshole. So everyone was being an asshole to me all of a sudden. People who used to be listening to me, which, you know, is maybe a testament to that my power wasn't actually real. It was just a co-created reality. And maybe that's what all power is. Anyway, so I was feeling really uncomfortable. I ended up getting this rare virus called hand, foot and mouth disease. Um, which I think if I were to find, a, it's like a, it's, a, it's a disease where your hands, your feet, and your throat all get inflamed and it hurts so fucking bad. Like I'd had, I had chicken pox basically on my hands and feet and like in my throat. And so it's a, it's a disease that usually only little kids get from playing in the mud. And it's very rare for an adult to get it, but I got it. I think I got it from walking around barefoot in Arizona, but one taste, so I was bedridden for days, and one taste said, or, like, the higher I was, my cult mom was like, well, that's what happens when you say no to the orgasm. So you can see, like, where they, they take every opportunity to twist things. Like, everyone was like, oh, wow, Ruan got really sick with this rare virus right after he said no or he wasn't willing to commit. That must be what like, – people actually believe that. And honestly, I started to believe it too. It's like, is that what really happened? Or I started to think because they would talk about witch stuff all the time and casting spells kind of in a joking way. And, and I will say this, like, my cult mom would have this way of, like, if a, if a man, like if a creepy dude showed up to an event and like everyone, all the people would get uncomfortable. I was like, should we ask him to leave and stuff? Like he was like, by creepy, I mean like he was actually being like, uh, sexually not cool. sorry. I'm getting, I'm losing my words. Um, she'd be like, no, 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 that's too heavy handed. I'm going to make him move with magic. And like, she would just be like, I'm just going to make him leave. And like literally every time she did that, the guy would be like, oh, I don't know. I feel kind of weird. I'm going to go home early. And he would just leave. This happened every time. I still don't have an explanation from it other than, like, there are certain things that people can do uh, to affect each other. And I, and I do believe this. I don't know where the line is because we can't prove any of this stuff. But stuff like that would happen. So, like, I would think, man, maybe they really did cast a spell on me. Maybe because I didn't commit to them, they cast the spell, and now I have this rare disease. Anyway, the disease passed. But it was weird because I, I couldn't walk. I couldn't talk and I couldn't hold things. That's just it's hand, foot, and mouth disease. So in this time, I you know I have a fever. I'm all fucked up and I'm in like you know I'm sweating nonstop. I'm like in this like it felt like uh, the dark part of an ayahuasca journey where like you're per- I wasn't throwing up, but it felt like that in my body. Like just like just nonstop pain. And I'm contemplating everything and I'm trying to talk to God. And like the One Taste people, they're playing good cop, bad cop with me. Where random people who I wasn't close with um, were sending me nice messages, and then people who I was close with were ignoring me still. And I was all messed up. And um I had kind of I had gotten a, a mild intuition that this was time for me to leave. But everything in my reality, in my external reality, was like, Ruan, you're an asshole. You need to make it up to everybody. Um, and I was, you know, I anyway, I did all these things, humiliating myself to try to get back in with them. They weren't good enough. I started volunteering at their things again to help out, and it still wasn't good enough. It was after I was I got over my disease, but I was still kind of fucked up physically and emotionally. I definitely was. And, um, oh, this is important because I think it ties to what I believe in now. Like in my, in my, my head was so fucked up. The only thing that made sense for me was something I learned right in the beginning of my journey, which was, if you can't think of what's right, do what makes your body feel good. This was one of my very first lessons, which was on, um, I was so in my head before I was trying to be so super productive and rational. I was miserable. And like what helped me in one taste was that getting in touch with the feelings of my body and doing what feels right. So I was like, all right, I, I remember being in the back of a one-taste course journaling to myself. Like, I am so fucked up. Everyone's being – I hate, and I know it probably sounds silly, especially because I'm speaking to a male audience live right now. Like, everyone's being mean to me. It made me feel sad. Like, I know that sounds very wimpy, but I don't know how else to put it. Like, if you're in that reality where you're so dependent on social ties, and this is, I think, true of any group reality, to have everyone being an asshole to you feel so bad, especially people who respected you so much within a week being an asshole to you it's just such a jarring thing. Like so much of our sense of, and our well-being is based on our connection. We know, we know this, like people who have positive, happy connections, live longer, they're healthier, all that stuff, better hormones flowing through them. I was definitely having cortisol running through me and adrenaline cause I was just stressed out. And I remember writing the things, I tried to write down what do I know for sure? Cause I was, wasn't sure about anything. I know that I'll feel better if I do, what makes my body feel good. So that for whatever reason that happened to be Tai Chi, um, I started taking Tai Chi lessons with a guy in the park. Um, I started taking improv classes because, like, make, making people laugh made me feel really good. I started taking acting classes that put me really in my body. Um, and, oh, I started going to AA meetings. It's kind of a random thing. Um, I've had some I've, – I've misused substances in my life. I, I don't think I've ever been, like, a, a pure substance addict. But I don't know if I mentioned this in part one, but a lot of one tasters, especially the higher-ups – were recovered alcoholics, I think. There's a few reasons for that, but they definitely attracted a lot of people who used to abuse substances because we were, actually uh, Leslie Selene said this in the podcast uh, that is gonna come out in a week or two. So like people who are typically drawn to substances are looking for that ritual initiation, like inherently, instinctually, and archetypally, they're looking for that ritual initiation that we don't get to have um, in our in our modern society. And, or maybe, and maybe it's caused by trauma or maybe it's caused by just like this yearning for something more. Um, she talks about that in my po- in that podcast. But I think there's something about like the thrill-seeking and the meaning-seeking and the spiritual need that they actually talk about in AA, like the spiritual maladies people have. I'm not saying I'm an expert on this or anything. But basically, a lot of people in one taste, in addition to oming and doing yoga and meditating, doing fear mentor, which I actually borrowed from the 12-step program, a lot of people go to AA meetings a lot. And I'm like, I'm so fucked up. I'm gonna go to AA meetings. It makes my body feel good. So it's going to AA meetings um, early in the morning every day around this time just to get my head on straight. I was taking acting classes and improv classes and doing tai chi. This is relevant because someone in, the, in part one asked me, um, "Do I still practice oming?" Very rarely, but no, I still believe in the benefits. I think any physical practice that forces you to pay attention develops that. But someone he also asked, um, "Are there any alternatives you can do by yourself?" This is when I discovered, like, one in Tai Chi, the awareness that you develop of, like, moving chi in your body is very similar to what I learned in Oming. but you can do it by yourself. Push hands, which is competitive Tai Chi, where you're going back and forth with a partner, is very similar to Oming. It it made me realize, like, oh, this ohm thing is not the only place I can learn sensitivity and, like, this ability to read people and feel people. Like, literally, when you're doing push hands, this is why I do this in my workshops sometimes is that you have to pay attention not only to your own body, but pay attention to the, the other, your opponent's body, your partner's body, and to the precise, uh, like, with precision to the point where you can feel his center of gravity so you can off-balance him. In Oming, is the same exact thing, but you're not trying to off-balance her. You're trying to feel into her body so precisely that you know exactly the stroke that's going to get her off. Same exact principle. And another thing with acting, my acting coach, he was the first person who, my acting teacher, I was taking classes, um, he was the first person outside of one taste who who could read people with crazy accuracy. Like he would look at someone and be like, oh, this person's resentful at women. Or this person like, oh, she's impressed by you, but she doesn't want to admit that she likes flirting with you. Like he would say these things that I had only heard high level one taste people say again. I was like, oh, like, because, you know, in acting, if you know anything about acting, it's all about emotional awareness like that's what the difference between a good actor and a bad actor and all these like being able to Connect and be able to be in a reality And this is something that I learned in One Taste. So I started to realize from these different things that made my body feel good Oh, One Taste doesn't have a monopoly on intuition. They don't have a monopoly on even the things I call mystical like These exist and all over the place like Oming is just one way or One Taste is just one place where people develop this So it started to make me realize like oh like I can still develop as a person in the way that I want to develop outside of one taste. Um, it was an important realization for me because I was in this reality where I thought they had they were the end-all be-all, and I was like, and they would say this a lot, when someone would leave, um, they would say like, oh yeah, they still have orgasm, but in a few months they're gonna run out because they're not owning anymore, they're not in one taste anymore, and they're gonna get depressed. And You would see this a lot because obviously when someone leaves a community they're attached to and they're cut off, after a while they start, I mean, it's just normal to get depressed, so they use that as propaganda of why you should never leave. Anyway, I started realizing that I could leave, and I in, in a in right after an improv class, I was just sitting, I was still fucked up, my body was still all wrecked from the virus. I was still emotionally wrecked because I didn't know what to do about this one taste thing. And I remember just hearing a very clear intuition. You're done. Tell I'm not gonna tell your cult mom, you're done. I'm not gonna say her name, but just tell her you're done. I heard that so clearly. And it's like after all these months of trying to listen to God and not sure if I was just talking to myself, this was one time where like whether it was God or my intuition or whatever, or the orgasm, like I was just so clear. Oh, I'm done. Like I could feel it in my body. I heard the words in my head. So I texted my cult mom. Hey, I want to meet. Cause I wanted, like I really had, and I still have so much gratitude for like, she taught me everything that I consider like for the most, or she helped me access what I think are some of my best qualities like right now, especially this kind of the mystical stuff where I do think I can read people really friggin well. And I learned that under her mentorship. So I met her for tea just kind of like a normal thing in the One Taste community. If you have hard truths to share with someone, you ask them out to tea. So I told her basically, um, I, I remember the words I said. I was like, I realize I've been in a uh, through in a revolving door with One Taste the last year or so, and I realize I want out. But I love you. I have all this gratitude for you. I am just like I want to go off and do my own thing. And she seemed to receive it well. She seemed to be like okay. But basically, I was saying like I'm not going to go this back and forth. I'm not going to be humiliated. I'm gonna leave eventually. I thought that was the it. I, I thought that was it. I was like, I'm gonna end when the lease is up in December from the One Taste house and go find my own place and get a real job, maybe whatever. That, from what I understand, that day she started moving chess pieces again to push me out. Because remember, you couldn't have people who were half in. If you were half in, um, you were a liability. So they had to push you out. And since, even though I was, even though I was now like being treated like crap by a lot of people, still within my house, the people who had I mean, people who had basically um submitted to the reality I created within the Brooklyn home House, they still for the most part respected me like they still were nice to me like i I had been a parental figure along with these other two people in the actually four people there's another person I forgot to mention her sorry um who were basically running this house um but basically for me to get she wanted me to get kicked out of the house, so she spent the next couple I think the next two weeks um reaching out to people into in my house and becoming friends with them. So uh, there there's a woman I was really close with who ended up being my girlfriend later on. Um, she started being nice to her. Uh, there was another guy who's like from the pickup artist communities so who's kind of like very in his head or like you know kind kind of you know power trippy. like she started being nice to him. And there are other people in the house that she knew she could kill. So flash forward a week, one day she's like, hey I want to come to your house meeting. We had a house meeting every Sunday. She shows up to the house meeting with my buddy who had moved out of the house, but now he was, he had gone to the dark side. He was a totally different person. And to, I'll, I'll admit, like, he had become, like, super, he had changed his look, he had changed his haircut, changed his clothes. He was, like, super handsome and he was, like, super confident in a way I've never seen him before. But he was a totally different person. Like, I looked in his eyes, it wasn't the same guy I knew. Um, and she came with, like, three other guys. And the reason why they did this is, like, um, Part of what cr- creates, a, I talk about this actually in the archetype class, part of what creates a group reality is the confidence and the authority and of the person creating the reality, but it's also numbers. So like, and we, we see there's a lot of psychological experiments that go through this. If you're in a room of uh, 10 people and they're all doing this one, th- there's experiments like if everyone faces the wrong way in an elevator and one person walks in, they don't know why, but they face the wrong way in the elevator, right? So like anytime one taste had a an edgy situation where they needed to overcome someone else's reality, they'd always bring numbers. So something that would happen sometimes would be like if they wanted to meet for tea on a, a one on, seemingly one-on-one with a person who might be contentious, they'd always be like, oh yeah, my friend so-and-so wanted to join. So they would have the numbers. They, they would have... Uh, they would be able to overcome your reality. It's a very common thing. So she serves up to our house meeting, which are our 10 residents with four other people so that she could like skew the numbers. And right away in the meeting, she just takes over. She's, she's very charismatic. She had ways of doing that. And she immediately, oh, uh, there's this one guy there. So in my house of 10 people, there was, some, there was a mix of influential people in the own community and just like party goers who were there. Um, One of the guys, like pretty much who was more on my side or more on the house side instead of the one taste side, he actually moved into our house because he liked what one taste had to offer, but he didn't like their manipulative stuff. He'd actually been in cults before, so he knew some stuff. There are a lot of people who like kind of hop from cult to cult because there's a lot of benefit that cults offer that other people other places don't. Anyway, right in the beginning of the meeting, he he we did our check-ins and he said something like, I'm uncomfortable that all this one taste staff is here. I don't really trust you guys. She took that as her opportunity to immediately kill him she she said some things about his um she brought up some stuff that made like just stunned him and he like felt shitty and then she went around the table like killing all of the people at the table who um I don't want to put it as weaker or stronger but that's just the way to put it I mean they had like weaker senses of reality like they could be killed easily like some people are harder to kill so she killed all those people immediately she she said it was kind of I mean. If you were to choreograph this or put it like in a screenplay format, it'd be like, wait, what do you like? Why is she jumping from thing to thing? But this is like this was her plan. She like called out someone for being resentful, which was like a, a really negative thing in this world. Like if you were resentful, it's like it was like it was like the greatest sin. Um, she was calling out someone for being resentful. She was like killing all these people, pretty much all the civilians who might step in. She killed them with the, their emo, her emotional her way of emotionally deadening someone. So now they were dead, dead, you know, dead emotionally. They weren't going to speak up against her. Then she went around and um, reasserted... So basically, the there were two people in the house that she couldn't kill. Um, there's a very strong-minded woman who ended up dating later on, and this guy who is also a good friend of mine who is also very strong-minded. She had spent the last week and a half befriending them so that they wouldn't speak against her when she started attacking me. So now she... And then she had these four extra people. So now the entire room was against me. Like, this was a room that used to pretty much be much be on my side because I, for the most part, created this reality within the house um, with benevolent means, but, you know, I, you know, I, I have uh, I have an ego too. Like there were certain things I did power trip on, whatever. Um, but very much, she, she had killed all the civilians. She had flipped all of my allies. And I looked around the table and I was like, fuck, I'm alone at this table. And I knew, I just knew the game. And she knew that I knew the game. And I knew that she knew that I knew the game. Like it was all like, like I just knew that she had checkmated me. I could see the four moves ahead. Like if I So basically after she killed everyone and got everyone on her side, um, she started laying into me and she was like, you're trying to hold this house but you're not a practitioner yourself. This stuff might not make sense to you but she was pretty much calling me out and not being dedicated. And she was like framing it in a way that I was now harming the people in my house who had trusted me to lead them because I wasn't committed to the truth which was the orgasm. It was all mixed up. She made me look like an asshole or like – yeah, she made me look like an asshole, an idiot. I could have said some stuff back at her, which would have been true, which would have been good on our like in a debate. But the fact was everyone in this room, the other 12 or 13 or 14 people, were now all against me. So anything I said would have been twisted as Roman as being an asshole. Ruan is as trying to be manipulative, ironically. So I just – I could see the, the moves ahead. I was like, fuck, I've been checkmated. And it was funny because nobody in one taste – watched media, like we were all on social media, but it was kind of like seen as a, a negative to like anything that was um, numbing to your attention, because they really believe, I mean, I still believe like attention is your best resource. You can do a lot of cool shit. If you have a high attention span, you can read people, you can get people to do things, you can help people, you can hurt people. Attention is the raw material of magic. And um, so anything, it's a, uh, anything that was attention numbing was seen as a sin. So uh, drinking alcohol, smoking pot, which I still did sometimes, but um, watching television was seen as a negative, but the one thing we would watch as, as a community was Game of Thrones because a lot of, uh, everyone, all the women identify with Daenerys, all the men identify with Jon Snow. We didn't know that they would be the main characters later on, but this was like, anyway, I'm bringing this up because that was the season where they did the red wedding. If you watch Game of Thrones, it's where the, some of the heroes show up to a wedding. They think they're in a house full of allies, but they end up getting turned on. Everyone kills them at the wedding. It, like I immediately was like, "Fuck! This is the red wedding." Like I thought I was showing up to my own home where my own allies live, and pretty much everyone has turned against me. And um, I actually just said this on Adam Padilla's uh, YouTube. I was like I don't know if he's going to keep this in the edit, but um, not Adam, sorry, Anthony Padilla's. He has an episode on cults where I'm a guest. Um, I was I actually heard the the song from Game of Thrones, "Remains of Casimir." I was like, "Fuck!" Like I'm screwed. So I was like, the only way if I speak up, I'm going to get emotionally shattered like they're gonna fuck with me really hard so like the only way I can leave peacefully is like just be like all right guys I'm, I'm gonna move out of the house so that's what I said I was just like yeah and my, my exact words were yeah I, I'm realizing now that it's time for me to leave the home house I'm gonna leave by the end of the month um and at that point uh my cult mom had done what she came to do she had cut me off she cut me out of the house And then pretty much the meeting was over. Like she made some jokes, like whatever. And like, I was like, fuck, like I've been, I've been, I've been, I wasn't emotionally killed because we didn't get to that point, but I was checkmated. And it was funny, like my two allies in the house, like days later were like, holy shit, Ruan. Like, I'm sorry I didn't back you up. I don't know why I didn't back you up. It's because she had timed it so well that they were under her spell. I mean, this is the best way to put it. It was some like near magic you know, with the social manipulation, like they were under her spell and uh, they couldn't, I remember like, um, my, she, she ended up being my girlfriend. She was my best friend in the house, especially after my buddy was manipulated to the dark side. Like she knew everything. She was like, she was my best friend in the whole world. Um, my cult mom had said something to me and I was about to, to fight back. And my, um, my future girlfriend, my best friend in the house was like, come on, Ruan, just listen to her. And I, I remember thinking it was just like Brutus and Julius Caesar. I was like at two, like like you two, like you two are behind like, that's when I realized I was alone at the table. My best friend uh, yeah she she was against me. um so I was fucked. Um, anyway, okay, so I'm gonna closing this up. I'm gonna answer these last questions. Um, i I ended up having to move out oh, and and this is the last magical thank you bit just to to put clothes and everything. um i get, I had like seven days to find my own place and like i was at this point maybe 30 or 35 grand in debt i had no income on the books there's no way i could get a place and, I, and like it'd be too humiliating to go straight from a cult into my parents house um which maybe was an option but i didn't even consider it it's like fuck i gotta manifest a home and um at an own party like a day later or a few days later it was like a party within the O.M. community It wasn't one by one taste I randomly met this girl, we ended up randomly making out out of nowhere. And just, just because like we, we connected without even exchanging words. Um, and then we started talking afterwards and she was like, I just signed up for the one taste coaching program. I want to move into the one taste home house, but I can't cause I have a, oh, she wanted to move into the Brooklyn house. She wanted to move into my house cause she'd heard of it, but she had a dog to take care of and we didn't allow dogs. We actually did allow dogs, but one taste came in and said dogs. I'm not even gonna get into that. That's another whole minor story. Um, so we ended up basically I manifested a situation where I can switch places with her. I didn't have to pay for her rent. I paid a smaller, maybe we arranged something where I could actually afford it and I could take care of her dog. So I, that was my last like manifestation, law of attraction thing within as I left the cult. Um, this is the final piece this is actually the final bit of my book. Should I give it away? Yeah, I'll give it away. I hope you still get my book if you're listening, but, um, so I was living in her house. This was New Year's Day of 2014 going to 2015. Um, oh, I don't know if I should go into this. It might take a second. Anyway, throughout the book, a, a huge – about th- the story, sorry. Th- throughout my life, it's going to be a theme in my book, was that enlightenment leaves no scars, right? It's something that I contemplated with my buddy, with other friends. Like, we would always go back and forth in private. Like, is one taste good? Like, we're gaining all this, but there's also this dark stuff. I like, would always go back and forth this ethical question. And something that – like. Uh, a line that would come up a lot from one guy I would speak about this with, who was enlightenment leaves no scars. So I think about that and I was having a new year's day party, new year's Eve party at my new apartment and I had my friends coming my, my real friends, my real friends, not not my real friends outside of like my real one taste friends, the people who actually had my back. Um, So having them all over and I was cooking a bunch of steaks and I was thinking about this, like I was thinking about enlightenment leaves no scars, and like, is is does Nicole have the capability of casting a spell on me if I write this tell-all book? Not that I was, not that my book is a tell-all. It's like it's my story. But anyway, I heard, I hear this gunshot out of nowhere. I fall, like I, I fall like eight feet back. The dog is barking. I'm like, I ring, my ears are ringing. I'm like, fuck, did I just get shot? Like, what happened? My my neck is burning. My hand is burning. I didn't know what was going on. It Took me like. A few seconds to realize and I realized there was a bolt, like a a hot piece of metal burning a hole in my hand. So I run to the I run to the sink and I I I, I wash it off in cold water. I'm like, what the fuck? Like I have this burning piece of like, where did this metal come from? And I look in the mirror and there's like a, a scar on my throat. Cause what had happened was that it's a, a weird occurrence, but I was cooking for so long. I was cooking steaks for like 12 people. The the pan got so hot that the casing of the bolt that connects the pan handle to the pan exploded and it went right into my throat. So if you know anything about yoga type stuff like the throat is the a throat a throat is the communication chakra the 6th chakra. I, there's a lot of yoga stuff mixed in the one taste stuff. I'm not going to I'm not going into that, but it was a thing, you know, I learned about in one taste ch- not from one taste but in the community, a lot of hippie people. And I had a cut down my throat that was exactly shaped like a vagina. One of my buddies came over, uh, one of my friends, who's like the pickup guy in the home house. I, he was already over and he was like pointed out like, hey, it looks like a pussy. He was all a jokester, even in times of emergency. I had this cut on my throat that looked exactly like a pussy. It was crazy. And um, yeah, I ended up, as I'm thinking, enlightenment leaves no scars. I got this scar on my throat now. Like, fuck, I have a literal scar shaped like a vagina on my throat. While I was thinking about enlightenment leaves no scars, I ended up passing out. I ended up waking up and my whole party was there. So my whole party walked with me to the ER on New Year's Eve. We check in, this is the end of everything. Uh, I'm in the ER and the doctor is like, that's like the weirdest, I've never heard of someone getting a cut from that. Like you're lucky it you didn't pierce your trachea cause then you'd be in real trouble. It's like, and and like uh, the magical thinkers in my group were like, in my friend group were like, yeah, it's like someone's trying to silence you. Like I was literally thinking about writing my book and I had this like cut on my throat chakra, it was like a warning shot. So this is, I guess, the thing, you know, if I end up randomly dead for some reason, we can assume that uh, maybe, maybe uh, someone from the cults cast a spell on me. I don't know. Um, anyway, the, the do- I asked the doctor, like, will this leave a scar? And he said, depends on how you treat it. And um, I think that's the moral of this entire story. We can enter bad shit. We can enter uh, things. We can enter trials and tribulations of our own doing or maybe befall us. crises befall us. Um, But whether or not it leaves a scar is not about the events, it depends on how you treat it. So that's the entire story. I know we went a lot over of my usual length of episode, but I'm gonna quickly answer all the questions that were sent that I didn't get to answer. Um, But that's my entire cult story. I hope you enjoyed it. Last questions, um, someone asked uh, other such things as good cults or organizations that um, have all these benefits. My viewpoint is that every group is organized like a cult. It's just what we call as cults are a little more inclusive and do it a little better. Like I look at political parties, I look at clubs, I look at ideologies, even ideologies around things like nutrition, they act a lot like cults, like with their terminology and their group reality and how it's us versus them. So I think almost everything operates like a cult. So if you take on that paradigm, um, yeah, there's plenty of good cults. I think Anytime, I, I, there's a couple of things I believe are true, which is for a group of people to organize around a purpose, there has to be power dynamics. There's no way a group of more like I think six is the magic number. Like I, and I in the military they talk about this like the the largest um, egalitarian unit in the U.S. military, as far as I know, maybe I can be corrected. Are the SEAL teams? The SEAL teams have six people, and everybody, all the operators, are basically on the same level. I could be wrong with that. That's my understanding. Because and those are like the highest trained you know, among the highest trained people in the U.S. military. The reason is, anytime you go over six, even with highly conscious trained people, you end up um, you end up having a disorder. Like, you need to have some sort of leader to make decisions. Like I said in the beginning of this episode, um, you can't have an or- a superorganism with, like, ten heads. Like, you need one head to lead the body. Um, so with that, power dynamics are, are necessary, but absolute power uh, corrupts absolutely. And, like, you know, there's another... Uh, quote I forget who says this, but if you want to see what a man is really like giving power, like when people have power, they don't always do things right. So I do think that in any organization for it to be effective, there has to be power dynamics. but when someone has power and it's unchecked, they can be negative. So to answer the question in a sideways way, are there good cults? Absolutely. Um, every cult has benefits. Uh, Scientology I'm sure helps people too, but um, you know you just have to watch out for the negatives. I don't think anything is black and white. To use another cliche term. All right. Uh, Someone asked, I think I answered this already, do I still practice oming? Rarely, but I do believe in the benefits. And most tantric practices have a lot of the principles of oming, but a lot of extra stuff. One benefit of oming is that they cut out all the extra stuff and just focus on sensation and cultivating your intuition, which I think is super useful. I think that same person asked me about reaching those certain heights I achieved on my own. I do think there's certain things, like certainly developing awareness and internal you know intuition and stuff like that can be done through meditating can be done through Tai Chi and these are things that I believe in but like I do think there's some things you can't achieve on your own and this is like a thing that comes up in the tantra community a lot of which I dabble in like there's some things you can't learn on your own there's some things that I mean we're social beings like you know I don't believe that meditating on a mountain you might achieve certain things but like to, to be a complete human you need to do things for other people it's like isn't a thing I learned at one taste like you can't tickle yourself that's something you would say you can't bring yourself into a state of involuntary which I don't think is true I think the Sufi mystics certainly bring themselves well they do that they do a lot of those things in community because for you to sh- I guess this is to answer the question to shift your reality in a profound way it it is very beneficial to be in a group of people like this is one of the greatest benefits I got from one taste was that I got to unplug from the conventional reality that I was in before and plug into this new reality where like I could really start fresh and ironically even though I did buy into their false reality too, just being able to break free from these realities and know that it was possible allowed me to find my true self and I do believe it helped me self-actualize to whatever degree I'm self-actualized like because, like, if you've been around the same people in the same town and the same – if you watch the same things, if you're at the same interactions on social media, if you do the same interactions, if you're in the same reality, everything you experience feels like water to a fish until you leave the water. So, um, to answer the question, can you reach the same heights on your own? Probably, but I think, you know, it really is beneficial to have a community of like-minded individuals. You have to watch out for the tribalism and the cult stuff, but, like, to really change – it helps to change. It has to be a part of a group. Um, someone asked the thing. Uh, I don't know. I don't know exactly what his question was, but he wanted me to speak about um, in the part one of the of this story. I speak about the masculine-feminine flip and how uh, a lot of the, the power, not in a power, a lot of the gender associations flipped. Like women were in more power typically, so. They started acting like men in some ways. They became very forward about sex. And a lot of guys, since they were the, now the hot, like like dick became the hot commodity because pussy was so available, to put it in crude terms. So, like a lot of guys became more reserved. Someone asked, How has this affected me today? Well, um, this is now a pickup term a little bit. I mean, it comes from other places, but like flipping the script, like I, I, it it again, like broke me free of like conventional dating reality that women hold sex and men have to hunt after it or or chase for it. That's the convention. Uh, I was just speaking about this with my girlfriend. like there's the convention in culture that women don't like sex and, and men are the ones who want sex more and they have to chase tail and stuff. And I'd say, you know, uh, I think Joe Rogan has a joke about, like of course, men like sex more. Like like uh, men are willing to blow up buildings for seventy virgins. like no woman would ever do that. I think it's not even that. It's like I talk about this in, in other topics. like if a guy isn't sexual if a straight guy is not sexually attractive to women, genetically he is worthless. Not, I don't think he's actually worth lifts certainly, but there's like an instinct. There's a reason why guys who don't get laid end up being so weird. Um, and I don't mean, I mean, I, this is not a judgment. If like, I'm just saying like the people we hear about, like the incels, the people who like do acts of terror, there's something that people don't realize this. And I think it's important. I talked about this with the Joker episode. Like most of people don't realize when a man is feeling lonely and not getting validation sexual validation being part of it it's like something in him perverts and like people wonder why like these guys act so weird it's because if they're so disconnected from society and i'm going off on a tangent sorry i talk about this in the in the joker video but what being in a matriarchy did for me was that it flipped everything in my mind i realized that a lot of things are conventions um some things are biological which i just mentioned but some things are conventions are just like you know are uh, you know constructs and um in my dating life, I, I just real, I mean, I kind of just have this viewpoint that women like sex as much. And if I just chill, a lot of it comes to me. Like, I, I think I realized my worth as a human being in the sexual marketplace to put it bluntly. And I, I remember after I left one taste and I was dating in New York, anytime a woman would insinuate that her pussy was this thing that I needed to fight for or like earn or something, I would kind of laugh because I'm like, man, like I lived in the opposite where like you know, it was the opposite. And I, and I, and not to say that, you know, that was me kind of being arrogant too to think like, oh, it's not like, fuck you and, and you acting like your, your sex is so valuable. I don't want to perpetuate that idea too, but it's just like realizing that um, all of these are constructs like, so how has it affected me in life? I'm just realizing, I realize how valuable male sexuality is and like how valuable male attention is. And actually there's some things that I do think are true archetypally gendered things, which is like, The feminine is the juice. And this actually relates to the next question. Um, The feminine does fill something with energy. The masculine, the testosterone-driven behaviors are what creates the structures and handle material reality. And that was something that was uh, um, emphasized in One Taste about how... um, yeah, I mean, a lot of, I mean, part of what made se- uh, men second class citizens in this community is that they were kind of expected to do all the heavy list- lifting and anticipate what women wanted, which is great for women. It's actually a good skill if you date women, but like they would be expected to like, pretty much do everything and handle everything and anticipate what women want, even when they're changing their minds back and forth, which if you date women is a good skill to have. But you don't need to supplicate yourself. You shouldn't supplicate yourself. You can be equals with the women you're dating and handle them, not to, top them or or not, whatever. I think you get what I'm saying. Um, oh, one, one, one uh, little aside on this, which I wanted to bring up. Um, this is like a side story I didn't get into. Do I have time for this? It's like, like two minutes. Um, in one taste, uh, in the One Taste Master Program, it taught some really cool shit when it came to sexuality. One thing was how women could get off on cock sucking, which is, you know, it's like pretty much flipping the, the script. So you, you had all these women for a period of time asking men if they could borrow them to practice blowjobs, which was this crazy, and I'm, not, I'm just saying this because it was like a weird thing that also went along with this flip of a script. of like, oh, I'm kind of doing her a favor by letting her whatever, you know? So um, that stuff like that made me realize that I don't, oh, this is, this is the lesson, and I tell this to guys all the time. Sex is not something you do for women. I think a lot of guys, especially guys who are in scarcity in their mind with sex are like, oh, I need to figure out how to please her I need to make sure she gets off, which is a noble thing, right? Like it's good to be you know, forward thinking and want your partner to have a good time, but almost always if you're going into a sexual experience trying to impress her, she's not gonna have a good time. She's gonna feel pressure, you're gonna feel pressure. You might not perform well. It doesn't make the sex good. What I tell people in sex all the time, for sex all the time, which I learned in, through Oming, which is the best way to enter sex is to be connected, be selfish. If you're connected, if you're empathizing with someone, or you're feeling the same thing, um, uh, then you're then you're kind of on the same page, and, and when once you're connected, you can do what feels the best for you, and most likely it's also going to feel good for her. And like you know, we know this the other way. Like if a woman is doing something for you, or like whoever you date, if the person, the type of person who you have sex with is doing something to you, and they're doing it because they love it, they love going down on you, they love kissing you, they love massaging you, they love stroking your hair, and they're doing it for their own pleasure. It feels so much better to receive that. Like there's no pressure on you to like it or not like it. You can just like. Enjoy the fact that they're enjoying giving to you. You know what I mean? Um, so, anyway, that was a big thing. Like a, a thing that One Taste would say all the time with Omi was stroke for your pleasure. And that's how I developed, that's how strokers would develop their intuition with stroking clitoris. Like you stroke in a way that feels the best to your finger. 98% of the time, it also feels the best to her clitoris. Anyway, we're almost coming up on two hours. So, this is the last thing I'm going to say, um, someone, asked, same guy asked, um, <clears throat> Getting, oh, he said something about getting high on the feminine of like getting out of the goal orientation. So this relates, it's like, um, yeah, just like doing things for your own pleasure. Like he, he just, uh, he, he commented on the last video um, in the in the Facebook group of uh, realizing that the act of flirting with a woman and exchanging those, those emotional packets or exchanging mm-hmm. the energy, that in itself should be the goal. Like guys who go out talking to women, trying to get numbers or trying to get laid or trying to get a certain reaction or trying to be liked, even if they succeed, it doesn't feel good because they're 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 um, putting too much on extrinsic value, and they're turning. Um, and this is what the pickup community does, which is I, I think is terrible. And it's what they've done to the way most men view dating and, and developing dating skills is not like is not work to get an outside goal. It's like you should learn how to enjoy women. Um, anyway. This is also something taught in One Taste when it came to sex, to OMing, to communication. There should be no goal. It's very Taoist, which is why orgasm and Tao kind of went together. It's just like surrender to what the orgasm tells you. Surrender to sensation. Do it for play. Do it for your own pleasure. Do it with a goal, with no goal. And uh, that's just a great way to, to view life. That was one of the spiritual lessons, which I think is very true. All right. That's it. Um, I think if there were any comments, there's a delay. Oh, actually, last question from someone who's watching right now. Uh, I have a question about how I can be myself. I'm afraid to be myself because I'm so extroverted that I would want to go on talking to everybody, scream all over the place, and say obnoxious things because if I'm a person, for example, I go to the mall screaming and talking really loud at the same time, that can have bad effects. All right, so that actually goes to what I just said to the person who just asked that question. Um, I that comes down to the be connected, be selfish, right? So like in communication, if you're being loud and possibly obnoxious in a way that's really off-putting to people, or I mean you could translate this to sex, if you're grabbing boobs in a way that doesn't feel good to her, It's apply to anything. If you're doing stuff for yourself that doesn't feel good to other people, I would say it's because you're disconnected. Like the, the sexual examples are easiest to look at. If you're really empathizing with a woman you're in bed with, if grabbing her titty in a, in a if you're groping her would not feel good to her, and you really pay attention to her feelings and you're really syncing up as best as you can, if you're really connecting, if you're really empathizing, it's not gonna feel good to you either. When a guy does something that is uh, that is not good to the woman, just use this as an example, it's because they're not connected. If you really connect with someone and you really empathize with someone, you're not gonna do something, you're not gonna feel the impulse to do something that feels good. Um, and i believe this is true it's hard to prove this is true so like to your example of like being loud and obnoxious potentially obnoxious i would say if you're at that point it's because you're actually disconnected from your environment you're actually disconnected from other people because if you really pay attention to other people and are willing to connect and feel them not that you have to go on their ride uh, i don't know if i you know, i think i talked about this in, in part 1 not that you're going to accept their reality but you're aware of it you honor it you respect their reality respect how they feel you're not going to go too far beyond what would feel good to them. You might talk a little bit louder than they want to talk, but they want to hear because um, that's just how, where you are. But if you're feeling somewhere, if you're connecting, you're not going to be up here and they're going to be down here. You're going to come close. You're like, you'll, you'll maybe soften your voice naturally because you're like, oh, it doesn't feel good to be disconnected from this person. Maybe you'll intuit like, oh, me speaking a little bit softer, speaking a little bit less will be connecting this person. Like You'll get that sense. Like Everyone has social intuition. I don't care who you are. If your brain works, you have social intuition. We're social animals. If you're willing to connect with other people, you will get a sense of what the other person would feel good. And like this is kind of the secret to instinctual game or natural seduction or whatever you call it or anything with communication, real connection is like really pay attention to the person, tune into the person. Naturally, if you're connecting with someone, if even if you're up here and they're down here, you'll kind of start to sync up. Or or maybe if you're really a dominant personality and like everyone's seeking your approval. In the ways that I described with power dynamics before, people will come closer to you. Or you know, if, if, you're, if you're around someone who's like your favorite, whatever, and you respect him so much and he's speaking quietly, you're probably not going to talk loudly and obnoxiously around someone who you're the biggest fan of. You're probably going to realize like, oh, this person doesn't like loud talking. I want to connect with him. He's got more social gravity than me, so I'm going to like sync up to him. Anyway, I break this down a bit in the masculine archetype class, but that's, um, that's, that's the gist excuse me alright guys I'm, uh, I'm done thank you for listening um, any last announcements these are every week if you're just tuning in now live if you're not tuning in live you can, and you're a dude you can join my men's group if you go to forum.masculineunderground.com you can participate live I know I've gotten requests from women to join these I'm sorry I don't have a co-ed group or a women's group and I want to keep it as a safe space for guys to talk about guys stuff so uh, I might make a co-ed group later and do the lives there. Um, oh, I talked about the archetype class a couple times. If you're interested, you can go to archetype.ruando.com. Um or yeah, that's probably the best place. You could put in your email. You can join the course if you want. Uh, any any last questions? Any thoughts? Let me think. Did I hit everything? Um, I think that's it. Thanks for watching, guys. Uh, next week we'll be on again at 9 p.m. Eastern. I have some possible topics, but if, oh, if if there's anything you definitely want me to speak about, punch it in, comment below, and um, I have a couple potential topics, but if people are into a certain topic, I'm happy to talk about that if I feel like I have something useful to share about it. Thanks for watching. I'll see you later. Um, If you're listening on iTunes, please subscribe. If you're listening on YouTube, please subscribe. I love you. Your support matters. See ya.